Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Fast Talk. Street Talk. Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid Talk. Hot Talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On your mobile, on your wavelength, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. So much to do today. It's the end of yet another crazy week in the international uh, journalism business. Uh, we've had some amazing stories. Uh, we've had Keir Starmer's five mission statement. We'll be talking about that. Uh, it's a one year anniversary uh, of the Ukraine war. So we'll be going backwards and forwards to Ukraine throughout the course of this show. Uh, a lot of people worried that there might be some form of attack launched by Russia to mark the anniversary. Thus far, thankfully, that hasn't happened. We will be keeping you updated uh, as we talk to people. Uh, both here and there about what has happened over the past year and what's likely to happen over the next year. We're also going to talk about migrants. Richard Tice is here with us. We've been discussing the latest news from the migrant front. Uh, to wit, all the figures that are showing more and more people are coming, uh, less and less is being done to stop them. All we've heard from the government is that they're going to fast track some of them now uh, into hotels, out of hotels, into holiday camps, out of holiday camps, into pizza parlours, out of pizza parlours. We've discovered there's yet another uh, business that started up in Folkestone, which appears to be providing food for an awful lot of the people that arrive, providing hand warmers for an awful lot of the people that arrive, and even providing, in one case, a large television so that they could all sit around and watch the Champions League. Marvellous, isn't it? Maybe they'd watch the Six Nations as well, uh, if they're into rugby. Uh, or possibly they just like Love Island. Who knows? All I know is that I don't particularly want to pay for a television for some illegal migrants to watch, uh, while they're sitting there eating pizza that I've bought them uh, and putting their feet up, warming their hands with a hand warmer that I've also paid for. I don't think that's very fair, do you? Rishi Sunak says he wants to create fairness. Well, would you please get on with it? 0344 499 1000. We'll also be talking about how Harry and Meghan have somehow managed the impossible. That's right, they've become even more unpopular than Prince Andrew in America. Brilliant. Absolutely well played indeed. We'll be talking to LaDonna Harvey about that. 0344 499 1000 is the number. We'll also be talking about Churchill and why so few people now respect him uh, or have even heard of him. An incredible statistic that came out when I was on the talk the other night. Something like 38% of people that they polled, young people, actually didn't know who won the Second World War. It's not great, is it? Uh, this is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. This is, of course, Talk TV. We are the only place to be uh, for common sense and for the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Let's get it on. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It is a Friday morning. The skies are a little bit sort of murky um, and it's a bit chilly as well. There's supposed to be some kind of beast from the east on its way here, uh, which might do one thing, which would at least slow down the traffic coming over from the uh, uh, the northern part of France into Dover and Folkestone and parts southeast of this country. Richard Tice is here. Richard, very good morning to you. Well, it is a morning, but it's a bit grey out there. It is. It, rather reminiscent, I think, Mike, of the speech yesterday given by Keir Starmer, which mm. was which was grey, which was murky, and frankly, he talks about his missions, yes. and he had five missions which was sort of cobbled together. Yes. Here's a thing, though, that I think I spotted yesterday, which is that I think he's using one of Tony Blair's former speechwriters. Yes. 
you can see in the language that's yeah. being used. It's sort of rather Clinton-esque. Yeah. It's, it all sounds very statesman-like. It's very broad brush, isn't very it? Very broad brush. Yeah. And he came up with five missions that no one can remember. So what I actually did yeah. was was I, I sent out a tweet sending what his five real missions yes. are. Because I don't believe a word of him. This is a man who, in his leadership campaign, let's remember, uh, lauded and applauded uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Yes. Three years later, right. he said that he can't stand as a Labour candidate. So his five real missions is, one, to betray Brexit. Yes. Two, unlimited immigration. Yes. Three, to betray women. Yep. Four, to destroy jobs via net zero. And five, to betray the working class. Yep. That is essentially what everything he's doing mm. is all about. And that's what it's all leading to. You're absolutely right. I mean, I had a, a fantastic tweet from uh, somebody who was watching the show yesterday who said he's a bit like a 1980s beauty queen, you know, coming up onto the stage and saying that he wants to eradicate world hunger and make the world a better place for everybody. Well, of course, that's what everybody wants. It's a bit like, and you say Clinton. I always said this when when Bill Clinton had his, um, you know, the uh, let's let's end poverty campaign, you know, Everybody was like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Um, but all, all but of, of course, you can't just end poverty. No, you, 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 and look, I've been talking about we've got to grow away out of this crisis for about 18 months. And in a sense, I'm glad that people like Starmer and, and, and others are now sort of essentially um, uh, they're adopting my language. And yeah. that is true. You've got to grow away out of the crisis. So you've got revenues to invest in public services. But you can't trust any anything he says. But here's the other thing. Have you noticed how... There's a lot, we're hearing a lot more from Tony Blair. All yeah. of a sudden, Gordon Brown's popping yes. up. Just you wait. Mandelson will be all over Well, Mandelson has already popped he up. He did pop up. He was in that secret meeting that turned so, out not to be so So you can secret. see what's happening here mm. is that they're basically creating a, um, a sort of coalescence yeah. around the great new hope. Yes. Uh, Sir Keir oh, listen, Starmer. I spotted this a little while ago because John McTiernan's a guy that I used to speak to uh, quite a lot on a regular basis. He suddenly drunk the Kool-Aid, you know, because there was a time when he was quite critical of Keir Starmer and he used to say that Keir Starmer wasn't really quite the ticket, he wasn't quite the guy, it was a step in the right direction to move away from Corbyn, but Starmer wasn't really, uh, didn't really have enough to be a, a, a new Tony Blair. He's obviously been told to, sh to stop all that and he's now, he actually described Keir Starmer's speech yesterday to me as excellent. Yes, no, and right? but that's because it's being written by some of the former speechwriters. I've no doubt about it. The language has changed. Mm. The whole approach has changed. And I think that's quite a significant moment that we should, uh, uh, that we, we, we should not forget, but also we should remember this is a... This is a man and a leadership that cannot be trusted on mm. anything and uh, a leadership that still struggles to define the simplest of things, which is actually what is a woman. Yes. And they're constantly struggling with this. And until they achieve that, um, I, I think they shouldn't be trusted on anything, frankly. No, I, mean, I don't think they a, can be. Uh, it's just well, there a, are two reasons why they can't be trusted. One, there's that issue about not being able to define what a woman is. And also, uh, poor old Angela Rayner actually was heard saying the other day that we should be compassionate towards a double rapist, the man uh, who thinks of himself as a woman up in Scotland, who's now been moved to a male, a male prison. Uh, she said we should be compassionate towards him. Well, sorry, I don't think most people would want to be compassionate no. towards a serial criminal and a rapist. Secondly, uh, he can't answer and wouldn't answer the question yesterday when it was, when it was put to him in another, another radio interview why he was so enthusiastically backing Jeremy Corbyn. Because it's not just that he served under Jeremy Corbyn and was in his shadow cabinet. He actually was very, very full square behind Jeremy Corbyn, behind all of his ideas, said he was a great guy, said he was not an anti-Semite, defended him to the hilt, and now suddenly he's decided he's going to throw him under the bus because it doesn't suit him anymore. No, look, it, the reality is 
that uh, he he U-turns whenever it suits him. Mm. And so what he's saying currently on Brexit simply cannot be trusted when he says he doesn't want to rejoin the single market, when he says that he doesn't want to rejoin the custom union, uh, he no longer believes in freedom of movement. The truth is he believes in all of those things. He does. And, and that's the direction of travel that he will take us, either through the front door, more likely through the side door or the back gate. Absolutely right. Quietly. And, and that's, what, that's what the team around him... And so, isn't it fascinating as well, of all of his five mission statements that he made yesterday, not one of them had anything to do with immigration. Yes, absolutely. And uh, it, having said that, whether or not the leaders of the main two parties refer to immigration, he didn't. Right. Sunak did on January the 3rd, and here we are seven weeks later. And we're seeing from the from the asylum statistics, the uh, the Home Office statistics. So uh, the boat crossings that is apparently Sunak's mm. you know main priority yes. to stop the boats, but yet the numbers are not really showing that he's doing very well. It turns out, no. so far this year, there's been a hundred percent plus increase <laughs> in the boats. Not only in the number of right. people coming across, but we also learned yesterday that the number of people per boat yes. has increased the boats dramatically. Are getting bigger. The boats are getting bigger as the numbers get bigger. Yeah. And this is an increasing trend. Um, I suspect by the end of this year, we will see boats a bit like the boats that are being mm. seen in the Mediterranean. Yes, I've with heard that before. And what would Border Force do? I mean, we heard a Border Force um, employee on this station yesterday who said, you know, uh, we just need more um, people. If we had more people, we could stop them. And that's the first time I've ever heard anyone from Border Force say that. But you're absolutely right. What would happen, for example, if a boatload of refugees, say 200 of them, on one of those massive boats that they see in the Mediterranean coming from North Africa... What would happen? We'd almost certainly welcome them here. We'd exactly the same as just order up a few more pizzas, order up a few more coaches, take them to a few more hotels. We wouldn't stop them. No, absolutely. What was interesting though was uh, anonymous border of border force official yesterday on this channel saying that actually what they need is political leadership, mm. and if the political leaders leaders said take the boats back to France, mm. that's what border force would do. That's the first time I've ever heard that. I've been saying. For months and months, this crisis only stops mm. when you safely pick people up and take them back to France, yeah. at which point the whole business model fails. Yeah. Uh, and at which point that forces the French to do a deal. Until then, this goes on, the numbers increase, and you know, just, just look forwards the next six to 12 months. And if this rate of increase continues that we're seeing in the first six weeks of this year, right. you're going to be looking at sixty to 80,000. Where are they going to go, Mike? Exactly right, because this backlog is never going to be fixed as long as we've got the useless Home Office, who apparently can only manage to process one asylum seeker per ah. employee of the Home Office no, but they've got in a, new, a week. But let's remember, they've got a new strategy, oh, yes. which, is, which is to send the first 12,000. Mm. They're going to send them, give or take, a 12-page... It's a bit like sort of GCSE multi-choice, yes. um, multiple-choice exam, right. where you basically got a couple of numbers... Uh, so, have you been persecuted? Yes or no? Yes. Uh, have you been trafficked? Right. Yes or no? And that sort of question. Are you like you fill to it be, all out. Are no you one like looks to be at tortured it. if you get sent yeah. home? And, and then, uh, yes, no. Um, to be honest, I hadn't thought about it until you asked me. But yes. And then the, cup- the computer will assess it. Uh, and so, ninety-seven percent computer says yes. Computer says yes. And so, all of those twelve thousand will uh, 
the vast, vast, vast majority will be allowed yeah. in. Yeah, don't guess, be surprised, by the way, if all of those twelve thousand questionnaires come back signed in the same handwriting, because they'll all be done by the same person at Care for Calais or one of these other. Well, charities, they'll all be, be advised you know, by who, various lawyers. Uh, various lawyers who will tell then, you exactly the, what to fill then in. Then you know. Uh, so then Sunak will be delighted. Oh, mm. we've, we, we're reducing the backlog because, yeah. of course, then what happens? Is yeah, but that, by then the backlog will have increased by more than twelve thousand anyway. Yes, but so in which case. Another 12,000 will get the same 10-page questionnaire. Right. And so it goes on. So maybe the business to go into is yeah. questionnaires. Well, maybe just save the money for printing up the questionnaires and just give them citizenship right now. It might be easier. It'd save us a bit of, a bit of uh, money because we're going to find out coming up very shortly. Uh, yet another waste of money. Loads of money being spent uh, on the asylum seekers who are arriving here, uh, being put in hotels, being given food. Uh, televisions are being bought for them. Hand warmers are being given to them. There's a new operation. There's a new sheriff in town if you like, uh, which is not, in fact, Domino's Pizza, but it's some organisation, some sort of half-baked charity, by the looks of it, uh, somewhere near Folkestone. We can't quite work out what it is that they're supposed to be doing, uh, but they're certainly raising some funds for some things and spend and, and gaining some money from the Home Office uh, for, for providing food. Um, so these migrants arriving and sitting in hotels at our expense, watching the football with their feet up. Marvellous, isn't it? Uh, Richard Tice is here. We'll have more from him. Uh, much more to talk about as well. 0344 499 1000 is the number. We'd love to hear from you. This is Talk TV. Food to feel good about. Selected lines and stores, subject to availability. Prices may vary in Little Waitrose, Channel Islands and concessions. Talk Radio. Listen. Digest. Repeat. Understand. Accept no substitutes. Talk Radio. Online. On DAB+. Talk Radio and Talk TV. This is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Of course, uh, we are here with Richard Tice. We're working on all sorts of stories this morning, uh, including, of course, there will be a minute silence. Keir Starmer, by the way, do you know, uh, apparently is doing a minute silence on his own um, in about 20 minutes' time. Quite extraordinary. And this is the sort of... I think this is him uh, adopting almost like a Kinnock-like mm. presidential attitude that he's above everybody else yeah. and that he should sort of lead the way with his own minute silence. Yeah. I think this is going to come back to bite him. I where think it, it will. Hurts. I really do. Uh, I, I, I touched earlier on some of the people sort of coalescing around him. He's being built up to be some sort of saint-like figure yeah. uh, that's going to his mission. Yes. His mission well, I mean, it's quite is a, to it's, save it's, it's Britain. It's quite a clever strategy, I suppose, because he's trying to make out that the government currently is in disarray. It's run in such a sort of haphazard manner that they're sort of limping from one crisis to another, which is kind of how it looks. So he's trying to give the impression of somebody who would be sane, somebody who would be boring, somebody who would be kind of in, uh, yeah, no. uh, in, entirely in charge of what his own arrangements would be. Look, but the reality is that uh, there's, no, there's no detail. Where's the actual answers to the challenges? Mm. It's all very waffle sort of talking about missions and, and we're going to achieve these great yes. things. But we actually, how are you going to do We want for the future. Well, what does the that people, mean? people don't want waffle. People want, they want detail. They want yeah. action. How are you going to do it? How long is it going to take? What's it going to cost? Uh, and, and is it going to work? That's the reality of what people want. Yeah. And it's, uh, yeah, I think he's, um, I, I think he, he will find himself... Uh, in in a uh, a bad place yeah. if he becomes too presidential. I right. think people will say, that's not for us. Because a good example of what's gone wrong for this government is that they now get blamed for absolutely everything. You know, I'm very much one of those who doesn't blame them for the NHS crisis. I blame the NHS for the NHS crisis, for it being useless. I blame the police for not being very good at what they do. They've got plenty of people working there. They're just all doing the wrong thing. But they are, but they are all essentially... 
held to account by the government, and the government hadn't held them properly to account. No, they haven't. It hasn't fired the managers and the leaders of exactly. those respective organisations exactly. at the right time and demanded accountable that, you know, in, performance. And in a similar way, um, government uh, officials and, and Brexit, of course, is getting the blame for people who can't find any tomatoes oh. and any cucumbers. And it's not helped by the fact that Theresa Coffey comes out and says, well, never mind tomatoes, just have some turnips instead. Not quite the same thing, Theresa. Well, she, 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 as one farmer said, she was completely clueless. But this is this is the classic Ramon argument. Yeah. Everything, everything is the fault of Brexit. And sure enough, uh, because there's a tomato sh- shortage from North Africa and from Spain, mm. it's all Brexit's fault. It's got nothing to do it's with absolutely Brexit. Absolutely nothing to do. And in it's, fact, it's not even true to say that there's a shortage of tomatoes. There is a shortage of some fruit and vegetables in some supermarkets yeah. because the supermarkets themselves refuse to pay more money for the produce. But apparently now, Brexit is responsible for the weather. Mm. I mean, but the, the good news about this, and it's always good to look for a positive, is that the Ramonas are looking ever more ridiculous. Yes when they're looking for these, any excuse possible, mm. anything that goes wrong in the UK, yeah. it's Brexit. Well, I was listening to, um, for my sins, I think I've mentioned this before, the BBC um, uh, news programme that goes out, uh, PM it's called, at five o'clock, and the, um, the the interviewer was so desperate to get somebody to say it was the Brexit fault. He kept asking anyone he could find, he had about five <laughs> guests, to talk about the tomato <laughs> problem, and not one of them would say that it was Brexit, and you could hear the frustration and, in his voice. And, and he said, and, are you sure that in Europe they, they, they've got the same problem? And people were like, well, yeah, yeah, they have actually. In some countries, they do uh, better because they they pay more money to the to the producers and they are charge more money to the consumers, so they've got more stuff. But in Britain, uh, the supermarkets don't work like that. But the reality is that one of the reasons that farmers are not um, able to fire up and use their greenhouses is the cost of energy. The truth is that uh, this crisis is is much more likely mm. being caused by net zero and yeah. all the consequences well, of the drive towards true. net zero, which is just increasing the price of energy. Yes. And eventually farmers are just saying, well, it's either weather or, or we, yeah. we, we, we can't well, afford to heat the greenhouses. No, you're exactly right. They can't afford to heat. Well, they've taken the choice not to heat the greenhouses because they'd have to put the prices of tomatoes up. So they've just decided not to grow them yeah. until later in the year. And as far as the south of Spain is concerned, you know, that's again an issue of the weather where it wasn't quite as hot as it normally is. So, so things are being a bit delayed. So is that, but, you know, hang on, is that global cooling? Uh, it would be global cooling, yes. Ah, but so we don't, of course, they don't say global warming anymore because it doesn't work, actually, because it gets a bit colder now than it used to. <laughs> and they go, well, no, it's climate change. That was what that changed, actually, on the BBC. Once they worked out that it couldn't be blamed on Brexit, they started trying to blame it on climate change. Yeah. And are we going to have to get used to, you know, not eating so it's, many things from different parts of the world? It's well, never-ending. No. It's absolutely never Although, actually, of course, a few decades ago, the, there was a thing called seasonal vegetables. Yeah. And at different seasons, you ate different you vegetables. Can, I mean, it's not... I don't remember not eating tomatoes at any point of any year that I've lived. I mean, I don't, I don't remember whether we used to in in the winter not have tomatoes, and if we didn't, I don't care. You know, what's wrong with people? I, if I you think can't it, get tomatoes, deal with it. I think it's really, really important people actually focus on the truth, which is that so many of these challenges and problems, whether it's tomatoes or whatever, is due to the cost of energy. Yes, and and guess what? They don't seem to have these problems. In America, because no. they they use their own energy treasure yeah. under their feet, they've mm. got cheaper, much much cheaper energy. Their gas price is a quarter of ours. For Absolutely heaven's sake. right. Well, and, funnily enough, my two sons have just been over there, and my sister. I was talking to my sister this week, and um, the youngest one uh, was marvelling at the number of uh, petrol stations that there were and how many petrol pumps there were. He said, "Oh, he said, look how many petrol pumps there are." He said, "It's not like that in Britain because apparently in Britain you have to queue up." 
because there's only about four of them. One of them's normally not working. Yeah. Uh, and so you have to queue in your car to get petrol. Not in America. They take driving very seriously. They don't have low traffic neighbourhoods. They don't have 20 mile an hour speed limits. They don't have slow down to save the planet signs everywhere. Well, in fairness, Sadiq Khan takes driving very seriously. He just wants to stop it. He That's how serious he is. I've got a great one here from Chris who sent me a lovely picture of some tomatoes in full bloom on the shelves of a supermarket in Kingston. Oh. Uh, he says, tomato watch update, still available in Kingston. I managed to get some emergency <laughs> leaks as well. Uh, and if you want to be popular, surely the last person you want public support from is Tony Blair. Well, well, it's a good point. It's a very, very good point. But Tony Blair doesn't realise that. And he, he's everywhere. I mean, Tony he's, Blair walks around thinking he's the greatest thing since sliced bread, doesn't he? Uh, and he he, he's everywhere. He, absolutely. Uh, he's writing in the Telegraph today, wherever he can be lauded. And he's mm. got this vast institute. And, uh, you know, he thinks that people want to hear from him. And I think actually well, that is the, the way country go, really, it? really doesn't. I mean, you should really think about considering uh, getting your own institute because that is definitely the way to go. I mean, <laughs> you may not need the money now, but you never know. You know, if you're following hard times and you get your own institute, you'd be a multi-millionaire within weeks. <laughs> I think um, that's down the track. Uh, either that or go into the pizza business because oh, yes. I've got some news for you here. Um, Border Force apparently have now stopped spending money at Domino's Pizza in Folkestone where they were doing a roaring job. I, I suspect the guy that ran it has probably gone off to buy some dream home in the Caribbean. Um, instead, they're now using an organisation called touchbasecare.org, and we looked into them a little bit this morning. Um, they've spent, just in December alone, 2,790 quid with these people uh, on supplying sandwiches and other forms of food to migrants in Folkestone. Um, they've also had um, the £950 spent on hand warmers, the home office, uh, which they've given. Uh, they got a TV, £760.95, so a pretty big television, uh, for the Stade Court Hotel, so they could all watch the football. Amazing, isn't it? It is amazing. I wonder, I'm surprised there wasn't a TV in that hotel before. Maybe the last lot of migrants stole it. I mean, I wouldn't wish to make that as an accusation, obviously. But it might have just been made up. Though. The reality is we know that with the increase in uh, asylum seekers coming across, we're housing them, we're taking hundreds more hotels are being commandeered as we speak yeah. at vast expense, <clears throat> and we're feeding uh, everybody, and we're giving them subsidies, and we're providing the heating and everything, and on it goes, yeah. and the cost goes up and up These people, and up. of whom there are now, what, you could say, the backlog is, what, 160,000 or something like that, yes. so assume that they're all in hotels somewhere around well, the country. Well, they're, they're, in, they're in hundreds of hotels, but also in thousands and thousands and thousands of properties that have been rented by right. the likes of Serco well, and Well, they're all living in these properties, rent-free. Um, they're living in hotels uh, without having to pay. Uh, they're getting their heating supplied yep. for free. They're getting their food supplied for free, all of which we're paying for. And, and now they're watching the football at our expense. And also, uh, in the properties, they're getting free cleaning once a week, yep. I was told by someone. Yeah, uh, up in uh, up in the north, actually. Yep. So, yeah, this is um, it's, it's great work if you can get it for mm. all the people... Uh, providing the suppliers. Maybe maybe you should set up a new business, Mike. Graham's Pizzas. Yes, I think that would be good. The Home Office apparently have said, um, they stress that uh, the money that they spend on these people is carefully scrutinised to protect the taxpayer. If you well, believe that, I've got it, some swamp land. The best, way to protect the, the, the best way to protect the taxpayer is to immediately sort out the backlog of these asylum seekers, realise that most of the claims are economic migrants, they're not genuinely freeing persecution, and that way... Uh, you then uh, deport those that are are rejected rapidly. Um, that was the other interesting thing about the asylum numbers was the complete collapse in uh, dealing with the cases. The numbers has, has just uh, absolutely yeah. collapsed, and the number of deportations yeah. is down to just a couple well, of it's thousand. Single figures, isn't it? Practically, How whereas actually, this? ten years ago, uh, the deportations were well over thirty thousand a year. 
How about this? I've got my hands on the questionnaire. Wow. Have you seen the questionnaire? No, I haven't. Question Was one. I right? Question, um, one. question one. Have you ever been involved in war crimes, crimes against humanity or genocide? Answer yes or no. Um, question two. Have you ever been involved in terrorist activities? Yes or no. Uh, three. Have you ever expressed views that justify terrorist violence? Number four. Do you have any documents or other evidence to confirm who you are? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, it's a, I mean, you shouldn't be laughing. How did you get to the UK? Were you subject to human trafficking? Yes. There you go. You're in. You're in. Uh, how much did your journey to the UK cost? Have you ever been employed by the military? I mean, are they having a laugh? I mean, literally, this is like comedy now. Well, I mean, it is incredibly serious, but it was it was obvious that it was going to be that sort of, uh, those sort of questions. They're going to be put through a computer and the computer will say, yes, yeah, please stay. Exactly. Welcome. Uh, and then, of course, the next question is, oh, and by the way, how many members of your extended family would you like to would bring you like over? To bring with you? Uh, and then what sort of checks are going to well, be made? 20. Let's, what sort of checks are going to be made to see whether or not they genuinely are part of your extended yeah. family? Or is it extended, extended, extended? Um, unbelievable. It really is quite shocking. Richard, great to see you. Uh, back at 10 o'clock on Sunday. Absolutely, with a blockbuster Sunday sermon. Looking Do not miss it. it. Looking forward to it. The Sunday sermon, always worth listening to. 10 o'clock Sunday. Richard Tice, right here on Talk TV. Uh, coming up, uh, we're going to be going over to Ukraine uh, on the one-year anniversary of the invasion by Russia. This is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Got quite a few messages already. Uh, how about this? Uh, there's one reason we're short of tomatoes, and that's because we might stockpile them in case Harry and Meghan turn up for the coronation, says Simon. <laughs> that's very good. Uh, hi, Mike. Here's an idea. Round up every asylum seeker, illegal immigrant, Albanian, that has come to our shores in the last five years. Then round up every Ulster loyalist. Swap them over. Uh, let's era have Ulster. All Ulster loyalists are settled in Scotland. That would kill the immigration problem. The Northern Ireland Protocol and Scottish separatism all in one fell swoop. Lastly, of course, stop immigration, including uh, from the Irish Republic, says Mike in Leon C. Um, Mike, a minute's silence from Starmer sounds wonderful. A lifetime of silence from him would be bliss. Uh, says Mags. Well, I think I think that's what we're all thinking. Uh, yeah, for some bizarre reason, Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party in the opposition, has decided to have his own minute silence uh, ahead of everybody else's. Not quite sure why uh, he would do that. Um, right now, though, uh, because of most of the front pages are carrying stories about it, so you will probably know today is the one-year anniversary uh, of the invasion of Ukraine by Russian forces. Um, a lot of people were worried that the Russians might, in fact, do something uh, to commemorate the one-year anniversary. Thus far, I think, uh, thankfully, um, the guns have remained fairly silent. But we're going to go live now to Ukraine. Uh, Adria Sadchuk is there, a Ukrainian MP. Uh, we're looking at a scene in Kiev this morning. Um, it looks as though traffic is running reasonably normally. So hopefully, um, life in the city today, at least, Adri, is, uh, is OK. How are you doing? Uh, good morning, Mike. Um, I'm still in one piece. Yes, I'm good. Quite okay. Glad to <laughs> like hear it. One year. <laughs> me too. Uh, like a year ago, Ukrainian parliament today gathered together in the center of the city uh, doing our job. So it is uh, 365 days of nonstop operation of Ukrainian parliament, which is uh, absolutely amazing result for Ukrainian democracy. Yes. As for the overall situation in Kiev, uh, it's uh, pretty, pretty good. Yeah, the video which you are just showing, uh, absolutely <laughs> correct, uh, showing that situation is, uh, let's say, acceptable. Yes. And I mean, as far as the, uh, uh, the feeling and the kind of the mood of the people uh, in the city uh, goes, Adri, is it still pretty 
upbeat? Is it still pretty defiant? Look, Mike, we passed a huge way since uh, one year ago. One year ago, no one believed that we will survive even uh, one week or 10 days. Mm. Uh, for today, it's understood that uh, we successfully passed uh, more than 5,000 air strikes, uh, more than 350 you know, attacks of uh, Russian air forces, more than 1,100 1, uh, drone attacks, and so on and so forth. So all that was not enough to destroy Ukraine. All that was not enough to destroy our readiness to fight for freedom and democracy. And definitely we all adapted to this reality. It's difficult for you to understand how it is. And I'm happy to see how you discuss tomatoes. And we fight here to give you a chance to continue to discuss tomatoes. Yeah. And people here, uh, you know, they, they adapt it. They adapt it. We're really at war. And uh, for, for this moment, it's absolutely understood that nothing will stop us. No, of course. And looking at that scene there in Kiev where the streets are, are, are full of people and full of cars, there are so many parts of Ukraine which are not like that. And we see those regularly as well. Many cities uh, have been destroyed. Many cities have been attacked relentlessly with Russian uh, forces and missiles and artillery. Um, it's going to be a long time to recover all of the normal life that you, that you had. Absolutely. Kiev looks uh, overcrowded mostly because a lot of people from the east and south of Ukraine, they immigrated to Kiev. A lot of uh, Kiev citizens now uh, in Europe, uh, in UK, by the way, but uh, due to this uh, rotation of population, we still have uh, the same amount of population in Kiev like it was before the war. And uh, please know that it is uh, more than uh, 3 million people. And yes, uh, a lot of cities and villages in the south and in the east of Ukraine just keys to exist. So the rebuild of Ukraine, it will be a huge challenge for everyone as in Ukraine, as uh, in the world. But uh, I want to repeat my message, which is I'm repeating starting the March of last year. I don't want you, I don't want UK taxpayers to pay for Ukrainian rebuild. Everything shall be rebuilt at cost of Russian Federation. And it's possible to do that through confiscation of Russian assets in UK, in Europe and in other parts of the world. Russians shall pay for everything what they did in Ukraine. It shall be one of the most fundamental targets of all our joint efforts to finish this war. Because without Ukrainian rebuild, the war will not be considered as completed. No. And obviously, um, uh, Vladimir Zelensky was in London recently. He said that, that no inch of Ukrainian soil will be given up to Russia. Uh, there will be no compromise. There will be no way of making a deal. Uh, Russia just has to leave Ukraine. Um, how is that going to happen? What sort of time scale do you think is going to be required for that? Our big target, not just to kick off Russians from Ukrainian land, from Ukrainian territory, which is recognized by international law. Our big target is to restore international law, to restore international order, and not to let it happen again. Mm. That's fundamental things for us. And it is possible only through establishment of the new order of safety and security of the world with full respect of international borders. Otherwise, it is simply impossible. So that's why the victory of Ukraine is as minimum 
restoration of our integrity within the borders of 1991. Uh, it is bringing to accountability everyone who committed war crimes in Ukraine. It's giving us definitely the safety security through uh, admission to NATO. And as we just uh, said a minute ago, rebuild of Ukraine at cost of Russian Federation. That's uh, the target uh, of Ukraine and of all our allies. And I think for the moment, it is a consensus view. Yes. And when you talk to people in other parts of the, the country, um, Adri, particularly in the eastern parts where war is still raging, um, what do you hear from them? What's, what's their mood like? Look, uh, this war united Ukraine. And when you say people in the East, there is no people in the East. There is people of Ukraine because the war during all this year was everywhere. We were witnessing the explosions in the center of Kiev city. It was permanently happening during all last five months. So that's why everyone is absolutely in the same situation, regardless of the place where you are. Mm. Either in the East, in the West, in the center, or in the South. Ukraine is huge. Finally, everyone understands that in yeah. Europe and in the UK. Ukraine is huge, it's bigger than France. But now Ukraine is united like never before. That's good news. It's very good to hear. China um, has spoken apparently in the last 24 hours and it called for the end of sanctions against Russia and a ceasefire in Ukraine. Um, you, I presume, would not go along with that. Look, China is playing their own game. China is not in hurry. China, in fact, swallowing Russian Federation during last years. And I think it's a big plan of uh, Beijing, you know, to, to take as much from China, as from Russia as possible. Uh, yes, they, they, they repeat a lot of things which Russia wants to hear, but uh, it is not more than to balance between the interest of the West mm. and uh, the interest of Russian Federation. Uh, the most important thing that I do not expect that Beijing will provide military assistance to Russian Federation. That's the most important. That's why all other details, what Beijing may say about this war, has zero sense. Yesterday, the United Nations confirmed and approved the resolution, which in fact says that only Ukrainian, or as we call it, Zelensky peaceful plan, shall be a ground for settlement in this war. So that's why I think we should not be very attentive to everything what Beijing is saying about ceasefire. OK. Andrew, we wish you luck um, and uh, good fortune in the coming weeks and months. Thank you very much indeed. Andrew Osadchuk, Ukrainian MP, talking to us live uh, from Kiev. Uh, you can see the city there, luckily, still pretty much as it was. But it has been bombed. It has been shelled. There has been artillery fired at it. Uh, but some parts of Ukraine, of course, look an awful lot worse than that. Coming up uh, at 11 o'clock, we'll be going live to Downing Street, uh, where we will see uh, some form of a minute's silence. Keir Starmer, of course, is doing his own minute silence for some unexplained reason. Uh, we won't be bringing you that, I'm afraid, because uh, he can do it along with everybody else if he wants to. Uh, he doesn't get to do a special one on his own. That's rather odd. Uh, we'll take some calls. Uh, we'll talk about Harry and Meghan. Much more to come right here on Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. This is, of course, Talk TV. We are uh, approaching the one-year anniversary. We are at the one-year anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine uh, by Russian forces. It was exactly one year ago that we awoke to that terrible news. Uh, we're going to be speaking to Tom Much, who's a reporter in Kiev. But first, though, Alexei Goncharenko is here, Ukrainian MP for the Odessa region. Uh, Alexei, thank you very much for uh, waiting for us. We were covering that minute's silence in Downing Street. Beautiful singing uh, at the end of it. Appreciate your... Uh, uh, 
that your time is very valuable. How are you feeling today, mm -hmm. one year on from uh, probably when we first spoke? Uh, yeah, that was a very difficult year, tragic year, and uh, but also historical one. And definitely, I'm now reaching you and joining you from Ukrainian parliament. And I think Putin never thought that in one year after the start of his invasion, Ukrainian parliament will continue to work and uh, Ukrainian MPs will be in the, there here and the country will stand, will stand how President Biden said, stand, uh, Kiev stands tall and proud and free. Yeah. That is probably the most important. And um, in general, like many, like the whole world found Ukraine on the map of the planet, but maybe the most important that Ukrainians themselves found the strength inside of us to stop this army or to stop Putin, which so many were afraid of, and uh, to fight for freedom, uh, not just for ourselves, but for, but for the whole free world. Yes. And I seem to remember that, uh, I mean, we've spoken many times, you and I, but, but one of the times we spoke, it was when the Russian tank um, sort of... Uh, was the Russian tanks were approaching. I think there was something like, you know, 40 of them supposedly coming down in a straight line from north of the country, north of Kiev, rather, into the city. They never really made it, did they? they never got there. Ukraine forces managed to keep them away. And I think they were quite surprised at how hard it was going to be to, to invade, actually, Kiev, the city. Yeah, that was a Russian military convoy. I don't remember how many miles it was, but it was seen from satellites. And that was shown for um, everywhere, just showing like that it is impossible to stop it. But we refused to go to leave Kiev. Me personally, as a member of the parliament, I joined territorial defense, took weapons in my hands. Uh, even I never, be, even counting that I never before had any military experience. Right. But uh, we didn't have any other option but just to fight for our city, for for our capital, and for our country. That's what we did. And by these, uh, we all together, the nation, stopped aggressor. I think a lot of people were, were incredibly uh, in admiration of, of what you all did, because I remember speaking to some of your colleagues uh, who were further east, who, when I said to them, if the Russians arrive in your city, will you leave? And they said, no, we'll fight them. And I think that's exactly what happened. And that's, that's exactly why we stopped them, because of all this moral of people starting from all ordinary people and finishing with members of the parliament and president. Yeah. And what is life like for you, Alexei, on a daily basis? Because sometimes we see pictures of the city and it looks relatively normal, but of course it's not really, is it? Yeah, it's very mixed uh, because like, really like sometimes uh, you're working on the street, people, some cafes open, children, and it looks like absolutely peaceful and normal. But the next moment, uh, air raid signal can be missile attack. And uh, you understand that, unfortunately, this awful war still continues. Mm. And that is, uh, that is so frustrating. Because I can tell you, as a person who was, uh, like, I, like I told you in the first month we were defending Kiev, I can tell you that uh, if Ukraine would have it in March, weaponry that we received in may june we would finish everything in april if we would have more weaponry in summer of last year maybe we would finish everything in autumn but we have what we have we're very thankful for all support we are receiving i i want uh, one more time sorry for these sounds i'm in the parliament and uh, that is a sign we That's do okay. have voting 
yeah, sorry for this. Uh, I, I want to tell you that we appreciate very much the leadership of the United Kingdom. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Which uh, UK showed, and uh, several governments, uh, starting from Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, now Rishi Sunak, that is so important. I spoke with Rishi Sunak several days ago in Munich Security Conference, and I said uh, that we are very thankful for all support we are receiving. That is vital, but definitely more should be done in order to finish this war victoriously and quickly. It is possible. It is possible. Yes. Well, there will be more aid coming shortly, I'm sure. Uh, Alexei, thank you very much indeed. Alexei Goncharenko, the Ukrainian MP uh, in Kiev there. Uh, he's an MP for the Odessa region, which, of course, is one of the areas that the Russians have managed to kind of capture and have managed to occupy. But still the war goes on, still the fighting goes on. We're going to cross live now uh, to Kiev again. Tom Much is with us. Tom, um, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. No, not at all. Uh, tell us um, what you're seeing today in uh, in Kiev. Obviously, it's uh, uh, it's a day of a commemoration that I'm sure the people would rather not be having to commemorate, if you like. But uh, the mood of the people I've spoken to so far seems to be still pretty defiant. Well, so it's kind of a mix of a celebration and a, a mourning, a commemoration. Because what you said before about the Russian tanks on their way to Kiev, they did eventually make it. They're all, some of them here behind me, mm. absolutely destroyed and displayed as war trophies. Right. So people are both celebrating the fact that their nation massively outperformed expectations and managed to do amazingly well in the war. However, everybody has lost someone in this war mm. through missile strikes or they know someone in occupied territories who's been captured or kidnapped and so everyone is grieving but at the same time are very defiant and looking forward to ending this war decisively on the battlefield as soon as they can yes and i mean obviously the war goes on in many different parts of the country some parts are more dangerous than others but lots of the country has been completely kind of raised to the ground hasn't it a lot of the cities uh, out east just look like ruined um places now Yes, there are some places in eastern Ukraine, like the town of Solidar, that the Russians captured a few weeks ago. I was there at the end of last year. It literally just looks like it looks like a complete hellscape, or maybe one in every two buildings is just lying on the ground. The rest of them are all cracked and destroyed with their windows blown out. Yeah, it looks like something you see in like an apocalyptic movie or something, yeah. but it's real. Yeah, and an awful lot of people who, of course, have left their homes um, and gone to uh, seek refuge in places like Poland, in other countries in Western Europe, some have come to Britain. I mean, a lot of those people's homes will have been destroyed, presumably. Yes, a lot of people will have to be permanently rehoused. There will probably be a huge reconstruction effort here that will cost, I mean, people are throwing around sums of like 200, 300 billion dollars yeah. to rebuild all of Ukraine. But most Ukrainians that I've spoken to do, who are outside the country do say that they want to come home as soon as it's safe to do so and they have a home to go yes. to. 
And what do people think that time will be? Because obviously there's been a lot of activity this week. Vladimir Putin made his speech. Joe Biden visited Ukraine, went to Poland. Um, there's been announcements that more aid is coming. There's more planes possibly coming, more tanks. I mean, what are the people saying about when they hope this could end? People hope that we will know within a year. We will know by the end of the year, even if Ukraine hasn't taken back all its territory, we'll, we will have a good, because everyone predicts there will be very, very major battles over the next couple of months. There'll be another Ukrainian offensive in the spring, probably down south, and we'll have to see how that goes. If that's a success, then people will probably consider that they could reclaim all the territory, including that that was taken in 2014. If not, then they may have to accept that some of it will be lost in some kind of a negotiation or peace deal. But no one wants to go there until they've exhausted every military option possible. Yes. And as far as your own personal kind of safety goes, if you're in Kiev right now, uh, what is it actually like? Kiev is reasonably safe. It does get hit occasionally. We've all heard about the drone strikes and the missile strikes, but quite honestly, you're still more likely to, to die in a traffic accident here. It's quite scary, but yeah. it's not like a leading danger to your safety here. And I feel pretty secure. I mean, yeah. Biden felt secure enough to come here, which I think gives you a, an idea. Yeah, absolutely right. Well, listen, Tom, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Tom Hutch, Tom Much rather, there, reporting from Kiev. Uh, on the front, no, it's not really the front line of the war, because you can see uh, that life in, in the city of Kiev is actually not that different from where it was before the war actually started, before the invasion started. But as he showed you, uh, the Russian tanks are sort of displayed there uh, as war trophies because the Russians tried to invade Kiev, tried to take the city and failed miserably. One year on, uh, the Ukrainians still very much in control of it, uh, very much happy uh, that uh, they're, they're commemorating this war being a year on as opposed to actually having to be suffering under the jackboot uh, of Russian imperialism, if you like. 0344 499 1000. Coming up, we're going to speak to the Right Honourable Lord Andrew Roberts of Belgravia. Uh, he's going to talk to us a little bit about Ukraine. He'll also talk about the military and the strength of our own military right here in this country. I might also ask him, because as a historian, he'll have an interest in this, because he's written about Winston Churchill, why the people of this country now know so little about Winston Churchill and why some of them actually think of him as a negative figure rather than as a hero of our history. This is Talk TV. Online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Coming up, we're going to be talking to Gareth A. Davis, Talk Sports boxing pundit, of course, ahead uh, of Talk Sports coverage uh, of the massive uh, fight coming up at the weekend, of course, over in Saudi Arabia. Uh, Tyson Fury's brother uh, is going to be fighting. Um, and, of course, Sir Tyson Fury has said uh, if he does not win, uh, I'm afraid he will not be welcome home. Uh, he's fighting Jake Paul, who is, of course, the YouTube sensation. We'll also be talking to Bob Seeley coming up a little bit later on as well. Uh, he's over in uh, Ukraine. We'll find out what he's doing, doing on this one-year anniversary. Right now, though, let's talk to Right Honourable Lord Andrew Roberts of Belgravia, no less. Um, a British uh, historian, of course, a journalist, broadcaster, politician, a man of many parts. Uh, let's talk to him right now about the... Uh, State of our military, because it's quite an important question to ask, is uh, as we do uh, give so much military aid now to Ukraine, how are we doing uh, by ourselves? Um, Andrew, very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Hello. Good morning, uh, Mike. Great to be on the show. Yeah, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Um, we've got a very big sort of problem in this country, haven't we? We've been talking about um, uh, military arms an awful lot recently because of all the aid that we're giving to Ukraine. But an awful lot of people I talk to who are in the military or are ex-military say that, yeah, but, you know, we've depleted it to such an extent 
um, we're not really in a position now to be giving too much of it away. Well, you're absolutely right. Um, and uh, it's right to give these uh, these tanks and uh, and heavy artillery and so on shells to Ukraine. Uh, we've given some incredibly useful kit, uh, and the Ukrainians are very grateful for it. But what we haven't been doing is restocking and resupplying our own supplies. And so as a result, we're down to completely terrifying uh, levels. Yes. Before and the war, we had about 100 uh, heavy guns. Well, you can't fight a war without... 155 millimeter and 105 millimeter guns and we've got virtually none left in this country now mm. and do you think part of the problem has been the way that the west in general has kind of treated military operations you know they kind of looked for a long time at russia as very much of a benign kind of force keep them friendly keep them nice keep them close there's never going to really be a need to fight them um and it's all about the intelligence gathering now and it's all about cyber security and it's all about you know things which don't happen on a battlefield and it was almost as though the military uh, experts in the Ministry of Defence had decided that there would never be another actual battle. It's not really the Ministry of Defence so much, I think, as the uh, Treasury, which, of course, over the last 100 years or so, has established complete dominance in Whitehall, yeah. certainly over the Ministry of Defence and over the Foreign Office and, and so on. And uh, it's easy to understand why, of course, because elections are won on the economy. But what it's, this domination has managed to achieve over the last 30 years, really, uh, certainly since the fall of Margaret Thatcher, is uh, that defence has been wildly under-stocked, um, mm. under-resourced, uh, to the point that we're about, ever since uh, 2010, we are about £30 billion um, pounds short in real terms. Mm. And is that a fixable problem, or has it gone a bit too far now, do you think? I think it is fixable. Ben Wallace, who has publicly stated that the armed forces are... Uh, hollowed out. Those were his own phrase, and he is the Secretary for Defence. So it's a pretty extraordinary thing when a Secretary for Defence says that kind of thing. Right. Um, and he's asking for uh, 10 billion from the Treasury. Only yesterday we uh, heard that, um, according to the uh, um, Office for Budget Responsibility, there's a 5.4 billion surplus in tax revenues. Well, that should go on defence now. We're actually seeing uh, the biggest land war in Europe since the death of Adolf Hitler. And frankly, um, that is a time when we should all wake up and make sure that we've got enough guns and shells to uh, defend ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And even personnel, because, I mean, the numbers of people in the armed forces has been denuded quite considerably as well, hasn't it? It's dropped massively. Since 2010, it's gone from 102,000 to 73,000. Now, um, of course, the Treasury will argue, well, weapons have become so much smarter that actually you need fewer people. But we are looking at this at the same time that uh, Putin is calling up 300,000 men just in his latest call up and is spending $143 billion on, um, on defence and security. Uh, which is which completely dwarfs anything that um, that Britain can spend. But Britain has to do something, mm. uh, even to to stay up at the two percent level that NATO requires. Because the British Army is renowned around the world. Whenever I've been to any country uh, that the British Army have been uh, either either involved in or in some way have gone as peacekeepers or whatever, you know they're remarkably respected around the world. And even to the to the Americans, they're seen as as the specialists, aren't they? They are, but if you don't have enough of them, it doesn't matter how good they are. There's right. a phrase of, uh, of Stalin's uh, about the uh, the Russian army in the in the um, what they call the Great Patriotic War, the Second World War, which is that eventually 
um, quantity becomes quality. And when you see what's happening in the Donbass, where um, the Ukrainians are very regularly outnumbered five to one, mm. um, in the end, that will, however good your soldiers are, that will um, uh, cause, and however good your kit is, mm. that will uh, cause problems. And so actually, in order to have um, um, the, uh, the critical mass for the British army, you need a few more um, men, but a lot more weaponry. Mm. And speaking speaking of Ukraine, on the one year anniversary of the war, I'm not sure whether we all thought we'd be here. Um, I think a lot of people thought it would be quite a quick war. It doesn't look like it's going to turn out that way. Um, militarily, do you see any sign that the Russians could be defeated by Ukraine? Oh, yes, I do. A, a couple of things, really. First of all, this spring offensive that they're starting at the moment doesn't seem to be making anything like the ground that was necessary. And the Ukrainians are, are very good at counterattack. Counterattack is a tremendously important mm. feature of, uh, of warfare, always has been. Um, but it certainly is today. And the Ukrainians are already counterattacking from this spring offensive of Russia's. That's the first thing. The second thing is, if you remember uh, last year when the attack in the north around, uh, around Kharkiv completely collapsed and yeah. suddenly a thousand square miles was uh, taken back by the um, Ukrainians in very short order, a matter of days and weeks, you can see that it's possible for the very low morale of the Russian army uh, in Ukraine at the moment to just vanish overnight if they were seriously defeated and suddenly large amounts of territory can be recaptured in relatively small amounts of time. Mm. And just one final thought from you, um, Lord Roberts, because um, I saw a remarkable study the other day in which it revealed that um, not only um, had many people under the age of 24 not heard of Winston Churchill, something like 35% of them um, didn't actually know who'd won the Second World War. Now, I don't know whether this is some kind of terrible failure of the teaching systems that we're currently using. I wonder as well whether it's the sort of vilification of Winston Churchill that has kind of driven him off people's radar because, you know, you hear more now about how the statue of Winston Churchill is in danger of being desecrated, how, how dangerous it is to talk about Churchill as a hero because, in fact, he was responsible for the Bengal famine. You know, it's a shame, it seems to me, that one of our great historical figures has been reduced to a sort of a, a footnote, it seems, in, in history. Well, that's right. And uh, some 20 percent of, uh, of young people in Britain think that he was a fictional character, Goodness um, whereas, they, whereas they think that uh, Sherlock Holmes and Eleanor Rigby are real people. Right. Um, and of course, what you need is, is proper education on yeah. this. He, the, Churchill is not taught. And, they, and one thing that's certainly not taught is that the whole business with the Bengal famine is a complete and utter lie. Yes. It is unhistorical. It is not backed up by the evidence. Uh, in my biography of, um, of Winston Churchill, I go into this in some detail. The, it is just simply not mm. true that he, um, that he wanted, you know, responsible for genocide of Indians in yeah. the Bengal famine. It didn't happen like that. And so what it needs is, is uh, objective, serious, evidence-based um, teaching in our schools about the greatest Englishman who ever lived. Yeah, and even those who peddled the myth about the Bengal famine only talk about the sort of diverting of, of a couple of ships, don't they? It's not even as if, you know, but to, to listen to some people, it's as if he was kind of standing astride some kind of horse in Bengal, literally ordering people to be shot dead, you know. 
And, and it, they never point out that uh, where Bengal used to get its grain, uh, places like Thailand and uh, Singapore, Malaya and mm. so on, were all under Japanese control. Yeah. They never mention the fact that we're fighting a world war, right. that the Japanese were in the Bay of Bengal, submarines were, were shelling um, Calcutta. You know, it's, it's as though the whole thing um, just was taking mm. place in a, on, on a normal um uh, on a normal sort of summer's afternoon. Yeah. The whole thing is a complete disgrace, the way that, that this um, narrative has, has gone pretty much unchecked, even yes. though it's completely untrue. Well, I'm very happy that we've had the opportunity to, to have you explain that, because uh, I shall be using that for a future reference. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, very good to talk to you. We'd love, love to have you on again. Uh, do pop in. Uh, that's the writing of Lord Andrew Roberts of Belgravia. Uh, finally, telling the truth there about what actually is the story of Winston Churchill and how he is remarkably uh, maligned and incredibly badly uh, taught and, and, and treated uh, by our sort of educational establishment. He is a hero of British history, and so he should remain. Uh, coming up, Gareth A. Davis is going to join us because he's going to talk about this big fight coming up. It's live on TalkSport. It's live in Saudi Arabia. It's Sunday. Um, it is, of course, right here uh, in Talk Towers. The home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Loads going on. We've got lots of really great messages coming in and tweets. I shall get to those very shortly. Uh, big fight coming up this weekend, of course. Uh, in addition to all the other sports, the Carabao Cup is also on the TalkSport network. Uh, but it is Paul versus Fury, uh, the true test, as it's called. Free right here on TalkSport on Sunday. It's Tommy Fury uh, versus Jake Paul. Jake Paul uh, and the fight's going on in Saudi Arabia. We're going to talk to Gareth A. Davis very shortly, a man that knows a thing or two um, about the uh, glorious game of boxing and the glorious fighting business as well. Um, let's have a look at Jake Paul, though, because he was talking to Piers Morgan last night on Piers Morgan Uncensored right here on Talk TV. Do you have any doubt? I hear you guys have agreed now, whoever wins takes all the money. And that's a lot of money, nearly $10 million. Have you got any doubt in your head right now that you will win and that you may win by knockout? No, I don't. I, I'm confident in my preparation. You know, um, anything can happen in a, in a boxing match, but you work to make those things not happen. Um, and he just doesn't have the power, the capabilities to, to do anything to be able to, to defeat me. And that's why I'm willing to put my money where my mouth is, because talk is cheap. Um, and, and that's why I'm putting it all on the line. And Sunday night, you're going to see me knock this guy out. Talk is cheap. You're going to see me knock this guy out. Gareth A. Davis is right here with us. Gareth, a very good morning to you. Very good morning to you, Mike. Always great to be on the, uh, the Independent Republic. Lovely to have you. Brain. Yeah, absolutely. Lovely to have you on. I mean, this is quite an event, isn't it? It's live on TalkSport. It's a big, big fight. It's the first real test, I'm being told, of Jake Paul's kind of boxing abilities because Tommy Fury uh, ain't no pushover. What do you make of it all? Well, there's a massive jeopardy, uh, really, for, for Tommy Fury in this fight. You know, he holds that Fury name. His half-brother, Tyson Fury, is the heavyweight champion of the world. I mean, we even had, as, as the, your report uh, pointed out there with um, Jake speaking to Piers Morgan, um, that uh, Tommy's father, uh, John, at the press conference yesterday said, yeah, we'll do double or quits. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's so much jeopardy on the line, mainly because... Um, Jake Paul's fought uh, six times over the last three years against former NBA stars, people that aren't really boxers. He's uh, beaten two 
um, veritable star of, stars of the mixed martial arts firmament into Anderson Silva and Tyron Woodley. But this is the first time that he's come up against a proper licensed professional boxer mm. in Tommy Fury. But the jeopardy here is they're both novices. Tommy Fury hasn't been fully tested yet. And in many ways... Even though Tommy did an interview with me earlier in the week saying there's no pressure on him, people expect him in boxing to give Jake Paul a lesson on Sunday night. And they're both promising to knock each other out. Between the ears here in boxing, we always talk about the six inches that really matter, which is self-belief the mind game and Jake Paul has proven outside the heavyweights right now and outside Saul Canelo Alvarez the brilliant Mexican star to be the biggest showman in boxing Mm. he's the A-side over there Mike Mm. and they've taken it to Saudi Arabia with skills entertainment we can talk about sports washing if you want Um, but the, the the key is Tommy Fury has been taken over there to lose in Jake Paul's mind to him and his setup. It's an extraordinary moment with a lot of blurring of the lines mm. in the last 18 months, really, with a lot of people uh, from other firmaments. Jake Paul is a famous YouTuber who has become a good boxer, almost ambushing boxing um, for their own ends because it does create drama and entertainment. Mm. It's why we're here talking about it right now. Absolutely. And what it's done, and you've always been across UFC and you were one of the first people that brought that kind of to the public um, concern uh, and and cage fighting and all of that. And you kind of helped to merge all of those things in the beginning. Years ago, you and I used to talk about this. But um, one of the things that I find interesting is that my 16-year-old son, is absolutely all over this kind of stuff. You know, he knows exactly who Jake Paul is. He doesn't really know who Tommy Fury is, but he's going to be watching it. I'm going to be paying for it, obviously. Um, And, uh, you know, it's a fascinating kind of way of making boxing more accessible to a a huge new audience. It is making it accessible to a huge new audience. Uh, Jake Paul has 20 million YouTube subscribers. His brother has an equal number. Mm. People like... KSI, who's probably our most famous influencer yeah. in the UK, has 25 million. He started a deal just recently with a broadcaster, the Zone, for the next five years with 10 pay-per-view events um, in, that, in those 30 events. And there is a blurring of the lines mm. right now. And in some ways, um, certainly Jake Paul is the, is the lightning rod, if you like, for can you cross from that YouTuber influencer zone, that sphere, that milieu, genuinely into being a boxer. I mean, he has genuine aspirations to become a world champion in boxing. And weirdly, and I don't agree with this, uh, the World Boxing Council are over there. There's a cruiserweight world title fight uh, taking place on the undercard uh, between Badu Jack and Alumba Makabu. The WBC whose president Mauricio Suleiman is over there, are going to give the winner of Jake Paul and Tommy Fury, or certainly Jake Paul, a ranking. We don't know how high it will be, but right. a ranking in their WBC ladder. I mean, it's ludicrous in lots of ways, but money speaks in boxing, and it's really affecting it. It's a big, big crossover fight in lots of many different ways but the jeopardy for me the pressure for me is all on Tommy Fury mm. yeah I was listening to one of Piers' guests last night who was a, a Fox presenter but also uh, a wrestler as well and uh, who was who was loving the idea of this fight and he was saying that you know even if um, if Jake Paul can go three rounds he'll consider that to be a victory against a proper boxer like Tommy Fury um, well Tommy Fury said he's going to get him out of there 
by four rounds. Right. I don't think he's going to fight recklessly. I think it's just talk. And after all the talk and all the hype, we will see two novices in an eight, three minute round, eight rounds of three minutes, which is really kind of that kind of fight is generally hidden on an undercard mm. everywhere else. Yeah. But because it's uh, Jake Paul with all these subscribers and this brilliant marketeering that he's able to do, um, and it's Tommy Fury from this famous fighting family, 10 generations of bare-knuckle fighters from the Traveller family. And obviously, we all know Tyson Fury now, the trilogy of fights with Deontay Wilder, the fact he beat Klitschko, the fact that he's arguably uh, kind of risen above maybe Anthony Joshua in standing in this country now. Yeah. Um, and we do want to see those two in a ring. There's just, there's so much crossover to talk about in this. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a weird time in boxing, but... I will remind people that there have always been freak shows in, in boxing. Muhammad Ali fought Antonio Inoki, the Japanese wrestler, if you recall, in the mm. 70s. Yeah. Um, weirdly, many, many years ago, 100 years ago, Oscar Wilde's nephew, Arthur Craven, fought Jack Johnson, the first <laughs> African-American right. heavyweight champion of the world, when he was on tour in Europe. And Craven fought him in a bull ring in Spain. He was a Dadaist. Your 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 audience will appreciate all this intellectual uh, nonsense I'm giving you. But Arthur Craven only stepped into a ring with Jack Johnson because he'd won the. He fancied himself as a bit of a, a a boxer. He was an intellectual. He headed over to France to win the French light heavyweight championship. But because he was the only guy to turn up. He was bestowed champion. He didn't fight anyone. And when he stepped in against Jack Johnson, he curled up like an embryo every single time Johnson touched him. Right. There have always been yeah. kind of weird exhibitions. I, I seem to think, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, I don't know if I've got the right, the right guy. Did, did Joe Frazier or somebody not fight a kickboxer or something like that? Well, no, it was, uh, I, he may have done. I don't recall it, but there have always been kind of weird events going on. Saturday night, Aaron Chalmers... Uh, a star of Geordie Shore over here, yeah. who, who who the viewers will have, will have will have noted huge social media following. Who's he fighting at the O2 Arena in an exhibition bout on Saturday night for the first time? Stepping into a ring here after 50 fights undefeated is Floyd Mayweather. Yeah. He's in town. It's happening everywhere. Yeah. Um, if you're a boxing purist, it's not. Um, an edifying spectacle for you right now, but mm. it's just the way of the world. And social media has an awful lot to do with yes. this, I think. And as it's well. what they call box office. I mean, you know, in the in yeah. the, the pre-fight press conference, Mike Tyson was there, Derek Chisora was there, Tyson Fury was there. Uh, Pierce said he was talking to Ronaldo, who now lives in Saudi Arabia. He's going to be at the fight. You know, it's a, it's a media circus, isn't it? It is, but it all comes down in the end to that playground moment. When anyone shouted in a playground at school, fight, 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 everybody formed a circle in the corner <laughs> to see whoever it was, two yeah. girls, two boys, the school bully being taken out by the rugby captain or whatever it is, people will go and watch it. Fight sports creates drama, it creates narrative, and this is one of those. It's a rubbernecking event between two novices for millions of pounds and one guy is facing hubris on Saturday night. On paper, I'm going for Tommy Fury, right. but Jake Paul 
has an incredible mindset. Whatever happens, it's going to be fun. Yeah, it will be absolutely brilliant. Great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Gareth A. Davis there, uh, TalkSports boxing expert, and also uh, of the Daily Telegraph, of course, as well. You can get exclusive radio commentary of Jake Paul versus Tommy Fury on TalkSport. It's Sunday night. Listen to TalkSport on DAB. Download the app or via TalkSport.com. Coming up, uh, we're going to be taking calls and we're going to be talking to more of you. And also, uh, I'll be telling you something about potholes. This is Talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelength, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots coming up in this hour. We're going to cross live to Bob Seeley very shortly. Uh, the MP for the Isle of Wight, he's over in Kiev. Uh, we'll find out what he's up to and what he makes of the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion. Uh, we've spoken to a couple of uh, Ukrainian MPs already uh, and they're still feeling very defiant, very grateful, of course, for the help uh, that we're giving them. Uh, also, we'll be touching in uh, with the SNP because it turns out they've now got three count them, uh, nominees for the leadership uh, now that Nicola Sturgeon is no longer going to be running the party. Uh, well, they are Ash Regan, uh, Kate Forbes and Hamza Youssef. We'll get a bit into that a little bit later on. I might ask Bob a thing or two about that. Donna Harvey joins us from California. Also, Angela Levin will be with us as well uh, with the bad news for uh, Harry and Meghan that they've become even more unpopular in the United States of America uh, than Prince Andrew. Brilliant. Well played indeed. 0344-499-1000. Here's one from Chris in Milton Keynes. It's not just hitting the potholes that's a problem. Two days on the run, I was nearly hit by cars coming the opposite direction, swerving around potholes. And I don't think people realise they are dangerous in different ways. Well, that's very true because the other problem that you'll see is that quite often cyclists will swerve around a pothole and it will suddenly happen right in front of you. So you have to be really alert at all times just in case a cyclist actually swerves to avoid a pothole and comes right in front of your car. It is a terrible local problem but it's happening all over the country and it might seem trivial to you but if your car goes into one or if your bicycle goes into one uh, or if your motorcycle goes into one even uh, it is not a pleasant experience 0344 499 1000 is the number let's talk now though to bob seeley conservative mp member of the foreign affairs select committee um he's over in uh, ukraine today bob a very good afternoon to you good afternoon mike good afternoon to your viewers i hope you can hear me okay because there are some military people around me um, at the moment. So if there are people coming back to support, yes. they are. No, listen, I understand fully. Um, I'm hoping as well that you won't be interrupted by uh, any kind of activity because there were some who feared that Russia, knowing that uh, it likes to sort of register um, an, an anniversary or two, might actually make some kind of attack on, uh, uh, on Kiev and perhaps on other parts of Ukraine. But so far, that hasn't happened happily. What's the atmosphere there, Bob? Well, we had sirens yesterday, but I don't know if that was a false alarm if the missiles were shot down, but there was, uh, we, we carried on with our daily business. Atmosphere, I think, look, Ukrainians are very defiant. Kiev is a city that's getting back to a, a new normal. A lot of soldiers around, a lot of checkpoints, especially in the city centre. Um, and, you know, if you start talking to people, you've got uh, maybe 20% of the population that's been internally displaced since the war, millions of refugees, tens of thousands of dead and wounded on the Ukrainian side alone regardless of all the other people on uh, the dead and wounded on the Russian side. So this is a society which has been traumatized by this war. Uh, it's changed the society profoundly, but there's a great deal of defiance that, it, um, that the Ukrainians will continue to fight. They don't really have much choice because if they stop fighting, it's the end of their country. No, absolutely right. I've just seen a story breaking here today that they've received their first Leopard tank. Obviously, there's a lot of hardware coming their way. Um, it looks as though they're going to need that sooner than they thought, isn't it? Yes, and the problem is that, um, I mean, I've just been talking to some Ukrainians here and trying to sum up what the um, what Western governments are doing. There is an argument that 
the best way to end this war, the best way to end all the killing and the death, and the least dangerous course of action for everybody is to arm the Ukrainians now to give them the kit to finish the job. Because if we don't, then things become more complicated. And clearly, I think what Russia wants, or what the Kremlin and the Russian regime want, is to have this as a war of attrition. So effectively, um, this war just carries on for the next one, two, three years. Uh, and then that changes the dynamic, may change the dynamic of Western support. They want to wear down Ukrainian determination. I'm not sure they'll succeed. Mm. Uh, but the best thing is not to give them a chance. Yes. I mean, an awful lot of experts seem to think that there's going to be uh, some kind of offensive in the next week or possibly next month coming from Russia. Um, what are they prepared to do to sort of fight that uh, uh, on, on all fronts? What do you mean? What are the Ukrainians yes. prepared to do? Mike? Well, I think they're going to they're obviously going to resist and push back. Um, looking at it militarily, I think you could argue that the Russians, by attacking without any regard to the number of casualties and lives lost on their side, may want to drain Ukraine's reserves so it becomes more difficult for Ukraine to launch a successful offensive in the spring and summer when it's got more of that Western kit coming through the Challenge tanks and the 100-plus Leopard tanks. So one can guess at what the Russian strategy is. Clearly, the one thing that we know they don't really care about is their casualties. Mm. No, that's absolutely right. And as far as some of the more exposed parts of the country are concerned, I mean, uh, obviously it's more difficult to visit those, but an awful lot of those cities have been kind of raised to the ground and there's going to need, they're going to need an awful lot more money. I mean, I was talking to a Ukrainian MP earlier who said they're hoping to get reparations from Russia, that they're hoping not to have to ask the West for money. Um, is that something you could see as a possibility? Um, I think there's two. Okay, I was in Kherson um, in December, and I mean, 50% of the population has fled, and it tends to be the older and poorer who can't, who find it more difficult yeah. to move and to leave, which is very sad in itself. Um, but all, yes, I mean, a lot of these cities are just getting randomly shelled. If the Russians can do damage, can disrupt normal life, they will. Uh, it's a pretty brutal and barbaric form of warfare being practiced. When it comes to reparations, uh, there's two forms of reparations. There's Russian state money. So there's 26 billion sitting in London uh, from the Russian Central Bank. There's also obviously billions more belonging to oligarchs who may or may not hold, be holding money for Russian leaders, including mm. Putin. Yeah. So the first question is, do we get hold of Russian state assets? That can be done. And arguably, that's already happened before in the Iraq war, for instance. Um, that can be done. The more complicated question is to what extent can you go after oligarch assets? To what extent will the oligarch say this money was made fairly, whether it was or not? But then how do you tie that to the state? That's a more difficult question. Yeah, because, I mean, as far as the sanctions are concerned, when Joe Biden was there, he said there would be more sanctions put onto Russia. But there are many who think that the sanctions on Russia have actually hurt the West more than they've hurt Russia. Um, I think that targeted sanctions are valuable and sanctions over high tech, reduces Russian ability to make advanced uh, high-precision munitions, which is valuable, uh, and creates friction, which is bad in warfare. Uh, the question is, you know, Russia will survive. Uh, Russia will build up its domestic market. Uh, let's see the impact, the long-term impact. But I've seen some reports to say that sanctions aren't as successful as we would like. That doesn't mean you don't do them. It just means you try to make them as successful as possible. Yes. And you see figures like 8 million refugees in Europe, um, 13 million people homeless, um, in Ukraine, uh, five and a half million um, absolutely sort of out on the streets, if you like. I mean, it's a massive, massive problem. And I know that some people in this country ask the question, you know, do we really need to still be involved in this? But when you saw the reaction in Warsaw 
to Joe Biden showing up, you could really see how important the support of the West is. I do think that, um, I mean, we don't have to support the Ukrainians, but I think it is on balance in our interest to do that and support them to win this war in the short term because thousands, tens of thousands, and maybe hundreds of thousands of fewer people will die. And do- so I do think it is, yeah, I do think it is important to support them. And if we didn't, you would have a brutal occupying government in Kiev, a Russian-backed occupying government, and you would simply have huge uh, civilian casualty rates as the Ukrainians try to fight an insurgency against the Russians. Mm. So I think any option is bad, but arming the Ukrainians to win this year is the least bad option. And of course, Ukraine says they will not give up any territory. They don't want to surrender any part of their country to Russia. But will they not really have to do something like that in order for this to end? Uh, I don't know. And frankly, they don't really want to be considering that today. What they want to be doing today is to have the determination to fight. And it's a pretty emotional day. Ukrainians that I've been talking to and I was discussing this a few minutes ago Mm. in the next door room here. I mean, they're pretty emotional and they're not necessarily in the mood to listen to rational debate. But this is about surviving against all the odds. And the West wrote off Ukraine, Western military and political elites in their conventional wisdom, wrote off the Ukrainians when the tanks came, Russian tanks came rumbling in. And we badly underestimated them and badly overestimated the Russians. Yes, absolutely right. Um, how long are you there for, Bob? Are you going to be there for a few days? Oh, just, just a couple more days. I think we're heading back um, Sunday night. Yes, and as part of your, your vice chair uh, of a committee on Russia, um, what else uh, can you do to kind of dissuade the Russians from carrying on with this? I don't think you can do much. Uh, there's only one thing that uh, is going to decide the course of this war now, uh, and that is a defeat on the battlefield for Russia. Dissuading ended uh, about a year ago. If we had been less friendly to oligarchs, if the Germans had actually had the discipline to wean themselves off Russian gas, if we'd armed the Ukrainians properly, this war may not have happened. Even then, it was, you know, the Russians may have decided to do it anyway, or the Kremlin may have decided to do it anyway. So we have to live with the fact that the only good course of action died a year ago. All we have now is a series of, unfortunately, very negative courses of action. But the best course of action, the least bad, is to arm the Ukrainians to win as soon as possible. Yeah, absolutely right. And just one final question. The, the SNP have just announced that they've got three contenders to be the next yep. Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, Humza Yusuf, Kate Forbes and Ash Regan. Uh, do you have any thoughts on who that should be? I think the SNP are obsessed by independence. And if you look at all the polling, uh, that comes number seven for Scottish people. What they want is health services, education services, an economy that works. Mm. And of course, anything that matters, the SNP have failed and failed badly. They're obsessed by independence and it's preventing them from governing well. And as independence hopefully becomes a distant dream, I hope the SNP um, actually gets back to try to deliver for the Scottish people. I don't think they can. And I'm very much hoping that uh, Scottish people will start turning to the Conservatives again. But the SNP, I'm afraid to say, I think it's a bit of a waste of time. A waste of time. OK, Bob, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, keep well. Bob Seeley there talking to us from Kiev, uh, Conservative MP, of course, for the Isle of Wight, member of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee uh, on a sort of fact-finding tour of uh, Kiev and the surrounding parts of Ukraine um, on the one-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Let's talk a bit about the SNP, though, before we do anything else. We're going to take some calls coming up shortly and we'll talk to Angela Levin as well but one of the contenders uh, for the SNP leadership in the absence of Nicola Sturgeon is Hamza Youssef and we've managed to unearth some footage of his dexterity have a look at this 
Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.